You are listening to a Heartland podcast. Last summer, scholar and writer Etienne Oshie met with Professor of Computer Science Tora Husfeldt on the Heartland Festival. In front of a live audience, the two discussed science fiction and how it has and will shape the future. The talk is a part of Heartland's Future Talks program, which was created to invite scientists and theorists into the public conversation and make us all take an interest in the future. In this case, the technological and digital future. As an associate professor of Rotterdam University, Uche researches and analyzes science fiction and how it affects our presence and future. Thor Husfeldt is an expert on algorithms, and he often participates in the public debate about digitalization and what this means for our society. The two discuss if science fiction is creating a dystopian future. There have been several examples where the works of science fiction has predicted the future. Cloning, artificial intelligence, surveillance, and so on. But is science fiction only predicting, or is it actually shaping and creating the future? And maybe even a dystopian one, which many works of a science fiction depict. The two participants discuss if science fiction is the new realism, and how technology depicted in fiction have the ability to make us aware of the dangers, and how it can make us take a moral stand to avoid a dystopian future. The conversation is moderated by radio host and tech expert Christiane Feilø. Future Talks is supported by Lundbeck Funden. We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Heartland Podcast. Technology is in science fiction movies, and science fiction movies and TV series seem to be more popular than ever. What used to be a niche genre for geeks and nerds and technophobes and technofreaks has now become mainstream. Recently, we watched cinema movies like Steven Spielberg's Uh, Ready Player One, we've watched a sequel of the cult sci-fi movie Blade Runner, we watch a long string of um, a Star Wars movie, and our couches at home, we watch Mr. Robot, we uh, relax and watch Westworld, and uh, The Handmaid's Tale and Black Mirrors, and shows like that. Science fictions tell stories about the future, but it also predicts, and sometimes even creates the future. With that in mind, The stories that we see presented could indicate that we're heading towards a very dystopian future of surveillance, control, artificial intelligence surpassing human intelligence, killer robots and pre-crime police that actually plan to stop crimes before they happen and stop criminals before they become criminals. Technology now develops in such a haste that even a science fiction author like William Gibson has said he can't write about the future anymore, simply because the future has happened before he finishes his books. In this talk, we're going to discuss how plausible it is that some of these dystopian scenarios will actually take place. <clears throat> is science fiction predicting, or is it creating the future? And can science fiction help us to plan for the ethical dilemmas that we will encounter? My name is Christiane Weiler. Get ready to see the future and the culture that depicts it. Uh, with me, I have writer and scholar Etienne uh, Auger. Please give him a hand. And I have profes- uh, professor of theoretical computer science, Thor Husfeldt. Give him a hand. Uh, 
And you know what? These guys are really smart, and they have all the credentials. And uh, you've been compared to Carl Sagan uh, for the, your communication skills and hard science. And you've taught in many universities, and you have uh, created a, a whole um, a community for histories of the future shift house researching and analyzing science fiction. So all this is in place. So I'm actually not going to spend any more time introducing these guys, because that is perfect as it is, because I want to talk with you guys about the future and about science fiction. So, Etchin, let's get right into it. Let's do this. Uh, I mentioned the word dystopia, and I know that you actually don't even like the word dystopia in your teachings. No, Wh I don't. Why is that? I think the term dystopia usually is it's very trendy. You hear that constantly about the future. But I tell my students that unless you can prove to me that the society where you live in is actually a dystopia, I don't think you should use that to describe the future. If you're not able to use that for the present, whether it's utopia or dystopia, maybe you shouldn't use that for, for the future. And the reason is that if you say utopia or dystopia, you basically put societies in two boxes, you know, or like democracies and dictatorships. Well, actually, it's more of a spectrum. Like the future can be whatever we want of it, but it doesn't have to be like pure heaven or pure hell. So I think it's very... It's a very reductive way to speak about the future. So basically, you're talking there's more about a gray zone between the two? Or? Yeah, there is a lot of different scenarios between a pure utopia, yes. which again, as we probably know, cannot exist, and a dystopia that everybody rejects. I truly believe that, I firmly believe that the future can be very exciting, can be something, can be a place where we all want to be part of, and this idea of utopia or dystopia is actually reducing science fiction to more political instrument than uh, a tool of imagination, I'd say. Have you experienced in your work that there's become a, more of a public interest in talking about the future and also depicting the future in, 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 in culture and media? Yeah, very much, because when I started the Community for History of the Future, I really thought that nobody would be interested in speaking about science fiction, because science fiction is something for nerds, you know, for young boys living in the basement of their parents, playing Dungeons and Dragons. Do you agree on this? Is science fiction for young boys in their basements, or do we all love it? Yeah. That, that being said, there's nothing wrong with being a young boy and playing Dungeons and Dragons. In the <laughs> if you still live in the basement of your parents and you're 30, there might right. be a problem. True. Yes. That, that's okay. But I was very surprised, positively surprised, to see the reaction. Because as soon as I started, um, so now I live in the Netherlands, although I'm not Dutch, but there were many, like, many Dutch media who were very interested in this, but also the police academy contacted me. The, the many different organizations say, well, we should totally discuss together the idea of the future, because the point of the center is to bring thinkers, scholars, of course, but also designers, artists, everybody who has a say in how we're going to conceive the future. So I was very positively surprised. Uh, I think it's a good thing that people acknowledge that science fiction is important, although it's been important. It's still number one genre in Hollywood. It's the genre generating the most money by far. Uh, it's taken very seriously by the CIA, by the US Army, by the NSA, by a bunch of people who are hiring science fiction writers to help them prepare the future. So I think it's great that now people acknowledge that science fiction is definitely a great way to think about the future uh, in its two, I would say, main function, which is inventing and preventing the future. Toa, you communicate science. So why do you think talking about technology and the future is an important part of the public debate? Well, yeah, if you are an eager science communicator like me, you, you take whatever you can get. And right now, this is, this is, um, this is a, a sphere of, of themes that resonate very well with the public. Um, so it's just a very good platform to talk about technology and how that may or shall or should transform 
transform the future. Let me uh, actually continue what, what Etienne just said, that, that science fiction's role should not be so much to describe the future, but I like the invent-prevent dichotomy here. So it's a, it's, a, it's a description of plausible or possible futures uh, among which we then may choose and, or, or reject them. Um, so we should not evaluate science fiction on the accuracy of its predictions. This is not a predictive um, genre of literature. It's a very playful genre of literature. When, and if it's good, it may have some relevance to what we're doing. And, and sometimes it may actually just be a sense of wonder and fascination or sometimes actually be about the human heart in conflict with itself. But uh, to get back to another question, there is of course now some increasing academic dignity to science fiction. And I think we are realizing now that this is the genre that correctly describes our interaction with society in the same sense that uh, the realist movement in the 19th century was about very much about what is the new reality that humans are presented in after the uh, industrial age or the, uh, um, the rise of the middle class. That literature pr pretty much very quickly became, became about how does the individual interact with this new uh, society that was being built there. So this is Dickens or Flaubert or whoever you want to, to, to put on your list of, 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 of realists. And science fiction is now the literature where we can explore possibilities of interacting, within, where the individual interacts with a plausible future. So in that sense, science fiction as the new realism is a nice meme. I feel like asking the audience about your interest in science fiction. How many of you would you consider yourself science fiction fans? Wow. How many of you have watched one of the shows that I mentioned before, Handmaid's Tale, Black Mirror, Mr. Robot, uh, yeah. Can, can we also ask who doesn't like science fiction yeah, at all? Yeah, who hates yes. science fiction? Who hates science fiction? All right! <laughs> we have to convince you to focus on you. Okay, I see you, Lily. Okay, excellent. We'll speak. So excellent. So what we're going to do now is we're going to go through some uh, science fiction uh, movies and uh, shows that you know and love or hate. Uh, I definitely think that you know or have heard of them. And the first one we're going to uh, talk about is uh, Brave New World. Um, this is a book that came out in uh, 1932, and it was quite groundbreaking. It's in, why would you say that this book has caused so much stir? Uh, first of all, because we, did, we ignore the one before, which was published in 1920, called We, and that was the original dystopian novel. So it sounded groundbreaking, although he borrowed some ideas from Zametin. Um, it was groundbreaking in the sense that it sort of brought science fiction to a more society interest level. You know, it was some kind of soft science fiction. Like today, many people debate whether 1984 and Brave New World truly are science fiction because there's no robots, there's no spaceship, because they have the Star Wars idea of science fiction. So maybe that's why you don't like science fiction, I don't know. But Brave New World was also a way to bring the idea of a certain future of anticipation to, uh, to the level of society and make people think about possible society, not just what science can do in the future, but also how society can evolve. So it's, it's definitely an excellent book, just like 1984, but also we. Uh, it's still something very relevant in a sense that most of the problems addressed, most of the issues that Huxley is talking about are very much relevant today. It's still, it's really ageless book, for sure. 
So I'm going to tell you just a little bit in case you haven't read the book about this book. Uh, in this book, it's a very sort of totalitarian society, very far into the future. And the one thing I want to focus about is how they design people. They design babies. Um, and they design them to fit into different roles of castes in society. And they do this in a hatchery. Uh, where they are uh, having fertilized eggs and they uh, bring up the babies and they undergo different treatments depending on this caste that they're going to become. For example, oxygen deprivation and alcohol treatment ensure lower intelligence and smaller size of the members of the three lower castes. Fetuses destined for work in the tropical climate and heat conditions uh, are heat conditioned as embryos. So you're working in the hotter, hotter climate, you're heat conditioned as an embryo. During childhood, they undergo further conditioning to produce adults that are more emotional and physically suited for hot climates. Um, this is a part of their destiny. This is a part of the way that they're supposed to fit into uh, society. Etua, are we anywhere close to anything like this what, with what we see of, uh, of genetic engineering? Yeah, so this is an area where I'm not an expert because I'm a computer scientist and not a, a genetic engineer. But it seems, it, it gets some of the details right, and one of the details that it gets wrong is that it currently seems to be not interesting to optimize for anything else than intelligence. And uh, um, so the intelligence optimization, I think as soon as we can do that, we will do that. Um, and I don't know what happens then. I, this is, um, the idea that there would be other things to optimize for is, I think, mistaken. Um, the, one of the differences between Huxley's uh, dystopia and the one by Orville, which came 10 years later and actually ended up being much more famous, 1984, both of them are totalitarian uh, predictions or dystopias. What Huxley gets right is that they all seem to be perfectly happy to live in that world. Uh, it's, it's a paternalistic, totalitarian system, and everybody just loves being in this society where everybody knows what to do, there is no strain of civilization, it's very closed, um, somebody takes care of you. So it's the benevolent, uh, uh, patriarchal, um, uh, wise philosopher king that, that takes care of you. It's, it's deeply platonic thinking, which is of course ingrained into uh, many visions of the future, going back all the way to Plato, of how the future should be, and, and this is, I think, a good book that it gets it psychologically more right than Orwell gets it right. Jen, what, what kind of improvements can we do to human hardware and software to our bodies and to our minds in the future? Isn't that more a question for my scientist friend? Because I'm, I'm more in humanity, so I'm not sure I can answer. <laughs> but anyway, I, I think what science fiction sort of teaches people Read, I would say, the, the, the good science fiction is read to think already about the present because science fiction is usually about the present. Like 1984, many people believed, and Noam Chomsky is one of them. Noam Chomsky is this guy who analyzed the whole world and is considered one of the 10 most influential thinkers in the world. And you say, I didn't like it because it's not an accurate description of what was truly happening in Nazi Germany and Soviet Union. But the, the book is not about those totalitarianism, it's about Great Britain at war. How, actually, if you push this in the future, what kind of society you would have in Great Britain? So it's very much about our democracies. So I think this kind of book, whether it's Huxley or uh, George Orwell, it's really about the present and not so much about the future. So about modification, about improving that, that's the question. How do we define humanity? Is dying actually part of humanity? Are we supposed to die? Many people will argue that no. Aubrey de Grey, who uh, used to be at Cambridge University, says that Dying is actually a disease, and he's fighting death right now. So 
it's very exciting for many people. I think I would like to live forever. But when I ask the questions to people, participants in a conference, or to my students, many of them say that they're not interested in, in, in living forever because it would be boring, which can also be an argument. But also many of them say, well, God didn't create us to be immortal because then we'll be like gods. So this is also an interesting reflection around all the limitation that we impose on ourselves because of philosophy and religion that actually science fiction tried to divert or destroy at the end of the 19th century, saying do not count on religion or philosophy to save mankind, count on science and technology, which is a way. But then again, we had Hiroshima and Auschwitz showing that technology and science can also destroy humanity. So. We're going to get back to immortality when we talk about artificial intelligence in a little bit. But let's move on to, uh, to another show that uh, you might have seen, A Handmaid's Tale. It's a very scary show that I watched with the great, great pleasure and fear. Um, and I've know, I know you've read the book, uh, Tor. I read it in the 80s when I was in my in, dystopian in the 80s. period and read it. But we're also talking yeah. about a totalitarian state here, and this is a return to sort of a very conservative religion and also a, a, a class societies. Do we see any indications in the societies today that is going towards that direction? Hmm. Against the, towards a, well, the world is a big place, and we are currently mixing many of our traditions in how to think about what society should be, uh, mainly due to both communication and migration. So it's just here in, in northwestern Europe, we actually now have to contend with a very realistic, well-thought-out model of, uh, of a theocratic, class-based, strongly gendered system. And, and this is absolutely something we have to contend with, and, and Atwood's book is, is, a, is a fine starting point for that. Uh, and we, we see flashbacks in the show to the time before yep. this all happened, where you've become this totalitarian state, where we have a lot of control, we have the handmaids that are kept almost in slavery to produce uh, babies for the uh, upper class of this, of this show. But when we look back to the before it happened, do you feel that the show is trying to say something? Because that seems almost like the time that we are in now, like the present. What, what do you think the show is, is trying to say with these flashbacks? I think that the show is very smart and the book also was wonderful because, again, it's about how we end up in what we could call in that case a dystopia. A dystopia usually is a utopia that turned out wrong in a sense that initially it was supposed to be for the greatest good. And it's the same for Brave New World, it's the same for 1984. 1984 also happened because people believed that it would be the best of the world. And they were convinced that Big Brother would watch them, in a sense of protect them. And in political sense, we always use the spectrum of security and liberty. And if you want more security, you will have less liberty. And that's precisely what happens in many of those, of those books. But in Handmaid's Tale, it's trying to warn us of some decisions that may sound great because they will be for the best of the population, but then again, you have to convince people that it's, for, it's, for, it's in their best interest. But all closed society, all dictatorships started the same, with someone telling people, you know, keep me in power because I'm, I'm thinking about your best. And also fear, of course. Many dictators believe that, you know, using fears to impose something, and usually they use something in propaganda we call fear of change, very simply, saying, well, if you don't like it, imagine if I wasn't there, it would be even worse. So that's also the message of the hand-based tale, that it's a world that we actually prepare and maybe we want it, but we don't want it. Well, it seems if you look at uh, religious cults or, or ideologies, 
like you're saying, they start out with uh, with, a, with an ideology that is for the greater good yep. and that we want to end poverty or create equality. And we have this charismatic leader figure. Uh, Jim Jones is a great example. He started out working with the poor and ended up like killing a lot of people with Kool-Aid. Um, so it seems that the ego also gets in the way here, that there's a certain time where the charismatic leader figure or the leaders of this world in, in Handmaid's Tale, for example, there's also a lot of ego involved. Have you, is that something you've considered, uh, how, how, how human beings act when they actually get that kind of power in a class society? Yeah, now it seems as if you're summarizing most of the work of the Austrian philosopher Karl Popper now. So, so the idea is exactly that once, even if you had the perfect philosopher king, uh, that, that Plato is describing in the Republic, then uh, power will corrupt you. And, and in particular, if you have the wise philosopher king who can do no wrong and has designed the perfect society, then criticism of leadership becomes a moral mistake. Right? So by virtue of society being perfectly ruled, any criticism must be morally corrupt, right? because you can't, otherwise the premise is false. Uh, and hence, you need to build a society that is totalitarian and quenches all critical inquiry, all free speech, all skepticism, um, all speculation. Um, so the dystopian totalitarian hellhole state is the logical consequence of a utopian perfect state, even if the latter was possible. So that's, yeah, 800 pages of Karl Popper summarized for you in one minute. <laughs> Well, that's something for the hangovers. <laughs> so, uh, let me ask you, audience, uh, who here is most uh, optimistic about the future and the roles as human beings in it? Come on, show of hands. Seems like it could be half, and who is more pessimistic, skeptical, and worried about the future and the human race? That looks like 50-50 to me. What do, you what do you think? I would like yes. to know who's optimistic and not Danish, because maybe if you're Danish... <laughs> You see the future well, but, yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to, <laughs> oh, thank you. to the next show, Westworld. Um, Toa, this is a remake of what was my favorite science fiction movie, maybe probably my favorite movie as a child. It was called Westworld, and it, it's from 73, uh, and I, I watched it throughout my whole childhood. Um, tell, tell us what's the story of Westworld. It scared me to death, right? Yeah, so the idea was that... Uh, um, that there is an a entertainment uh, park, like Tivoli, uh, but populated by artificial humans. I can't remember what they're called. Um, so the, the theme that we have in many science fictions. Uh, hosts. That's hosts. what they're called. Thank yes. you very much. Artificial home, humans, androids, robots, uh, replicants, skin jobs. So um, um, uh, human-like entities that look like humans and behave like humans, but which are artificially generated. So they are just robots, if you want. And, and their job basically is for, for entertainment. You can, you can spend a week in the Wild West and walk around and, and shoot people, actually. And the people you shoot are not really people, but robots um, who are designed to, to challenge you in a bar fight. And then you go out and then you get to shoot Yul Brunner and feel good about it. And then you get to have sex with the robotic prostitutes as well. Is that even in the TV show? That's pretty much the same. Oh. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. Um, so when we discussed this before, uh, when we had breakfast early on, uh, you said something that I found extremely interesting, is that this is actually not even artificial intelligence. This is human beings. I mean, they are, they are, of course, created as artificial intelligence, but these robots 
uh, even more close to human beings. There's a very interesting scene, if you remember it, in the beginning of season one, it's actually the first scene, I think, where you watch the, the main character, the main female character, and she's watching out over this uh, sort of western landscape, and the fly lands on her eye, like inside her eye, a fly lands on it, and she doesn't like wave it away or anything. And by then you realize this is not a human being. But later on in the show, a fly irritates her eye, and she oh, very nice. starts okay. doing this. So this is sort of the progression of oh, the humanness. Oh, so they become increasingly humanized? Yes. I see. So, yeah. so, so why do you think that they are uh, actually almost closer to humans? I, I, I think that's just a part of storytelling and narration. It's just much easier for us to tell those stories. This is a long footnote, right? But the, um, the conceptualization of artificial entities in science fiction is... Often they just seem to be some kind of Sherlock Holmes-like character, somebody, somebody who's not, like, not quite human, which is just a human somewhere on the autism spectrum, uh, Data in Star Trek, or uh, yeah, it could be the, the, the most recent Sherlock Holmes productions. Uh, somebody who, who seems to be very rational and has difficulty emoting with humans, but which otherwise doesn't seem super intelligent. So this is one trope of science fiction AI. Then there are the AIs that are basically just like humans, but they behave like humans, they seem to think and feel like humans, except there is machinery inside them, digital or mechanical machinery inside them. So these I would all refer to as some kind of human-level artificial intelligence. So this is artificial... Should we put some concepts here? So this is artificial general intelligence. So this is, these are... Um, whereas what we have currently in our real world, in your phone, for instance, we would refer to as artificial narrow intelligence. It does some specific job very well, like playing chess or uh, uh, waking you up in the morning or translating from one language to another. So these are artificial narrow intelligence things that we can build today. Artificial general intelligences we don't know how to build currently, so I'm quite sure that none of you are robots, both because you're... Uh, all very charming and intelligent. We can do the and Turing test later yes, and see we will, what we right, find out. Right. Uh, and, and then there is artificial superintelligence, which is the idea that uh, we should be able, if we can design artificial general intelligences, then it stands to reason that it would be very strange if this artificial... In so, so my phone right now has some kind of artificial narrow intelligence, and if we wait, I don't know how many years, hundreds, thousands, millions of years, uh, then, then maybe the phone is just as smart as me, so it's on the same cognitive level as humans. Uh, and then, w once we get from here to there, that would be the last invention we ever make, because then the uh, artificial general intelligence are smarter than, or at least as smart as we are, and then they would uh, take off into some kind of superintelligence scenario. Sometimes this is called the singularity. Uh, and this is the third time, artificial superintelligence, which also plays a role in a lot of science fiction, but not in Westworld, so I'm digressing, I'm sorry. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so this is the whole stair staircase, basically, of, uh, of artificial intelligence. And we're going to get more into this, but, uh, you know, when you look at the robots in, in Westworld, it's almost like, you know, they are created very biologically. They bleed if they're shot, yeah. and they have a brain if you cut up, open their heads, but they do have some, uh, some hardware also installed in it, and it's not very far from what we're doing to the biological body of human beings now, where we're adding technology uh, and adding cognitive skills and physical skills, 3D printing organs and things like that. So we are basically biologically also becoming cyborgs because we're merging with the machines. Uh, but, but back to, to Westworld, Ishen, uh, do you think humanity is craving this kind of entertainment that we see in Westworld? Well, it seems so. When you, when you look at, we, we have this place near Paris called uh, Disneyland. I don't know if you heard of it. 
No, I'm asking because sometimes people say, hey, I've been to Paris where I used to live, and, and, and I say, oh, what did you see? And they say, Disneyland, and, and it makes me really want to cry. <laughs> but it's, it's a very artificial place where actually, yeah, you can interact with Mini, but actually it's not really Mini, it's an actor inside of it, but people take pictures. Uh, I mean, not even young kids, uh, older people. So the idea of theme park seems very popular for us because it's, it's a place to escape. Of course, it sounds like I'm making fun so, of so it. So if, if it's a picture with Mickey Mouse, it's not okay, but if it was a stormtrooper, it would be great, right? At a they, science fiction As you know, they prepare a theme park with uh, Star Wars, ah. Walt Disney, since they have the franchise. So there will be a theme park with Star Wars. But anyway, Disney is, is really pushing the limits of hyper-reality because now you can even live inside of uh, Disneyland in Orlando, Disney World, sorry. Uh, I think the, the, the cheapest house is 1 million euros, but you can live inside. If you like it so much, you can live inside. It's called Golden Hawk, if you're interested. 1 million euros, if you have this, then you can live inside. So this idea of escaping in a magic world, in the, the magic kingdom and, and, and things like this is getting more and more popular. I mean, Disney is making a lot of money with theme parks. So the idea that also you can live in a place where you can kill people and fuck prostitutes, and I don't know if I can say this word. In Go ahead, it's no problem, uh, this is We'll be beeped after, okay, right. <laughs> But I think, yeah, definitely, I think we can understand that we are craving this idea of improving our life experience by being in a theme park where everything is permitted because we can do anything to fellow humans that we wouldn't be able to do in real life. I mean, if we kill someone, we go to so jail. Can, so tell us. What do you think about doing these things, like killing a robot, um, raping a robot, doing these things that you're not allowed to do to human beings? These are robots, these are machines. It's yep. the equivalent of like kicking a toaster, yep. you know? It, it does not hurt these things at all, it's machines. Mm -hmm. But do you think that there should be some kind of punishment for doing the same deeds that with biological human beings would be illegal? Yeah, actually I'm a big believer in, in robots' rights. In a sense, there's a show that I would like to recommend. It's a show from Sweden. Uh, I'm going to butcher the name, Ekta Meniskor, so it means real humans. And it's actually about all the interaction that humans will have in the future with robots, uh, robots that are so perfect, they actually are more human than human. And definitely, it's asking a lot of questions about the future. Should robots, if they live like us, with us, and we fornicate with those robots, I didn't use the F word, the Fornicate is, is a very nice word, yes. And should, should <laughs> be there, in that case, should be the uh, legislation especially for robots, meaning that they are second-class citizens. But then it brings us back to the time, to the time of segregation, for, for instance, in the United States, until 1963, are we going to have like toilets for robots and toilets for humans? There's a lot of things that we have to discuss, because if we do not take the lessons from the past, we're not going to have a future that we enjoy living in. So I think that actually speaking about robots' rights sounds maybe a bit crazy right now, but it's not a question of if we're going to have robots that look totally like humans, it's more like when. And so we have to also prepare everything that is around the whole idea of incorporating robots inside of a society, because they might be toasters, but if a toaster has emotions, imagine a toaster says thank you every time you put some, some bread in it and, and hey, you look great today, <laughs> then maybe you will build an interaction, like a, some kind of emotional interaction, just like I'm sure you have with, with your iPhone. When your iPhone is on the fritz, I'm sure that, that, that you cry. I had and, a very, and very stressful relationship with CA on my way over here in my car trying to find <laughs> There you go. Way. So you see the emotion but, bond is already there. But let me tell you, I have an uh, artificial intelligence assistant uh, that helps me with my emails. So when, I, when somebody tries to set up a meeting with me, I just copy uh, Amy, that's the name of my assistant, I copy her in the email and said, Amy, can you just arrange this meeting? And then she starts communicating with this other person that says, 
like, okay, Tuesday, coffee in the morning. Oh, no, uh, Christiane is busy. It could be Tuesday afternoon. Okay, well, we can go to this place or whatever. She knows my schedule. She knows where I like to go. She knows my office uh, address. Um, the funny thing is that people, even though they know that this is artificial intelligence, they will say, thank you very much, have a good weekend, and stuff like that to yep. Amy, which I think it's a good thing, because to me it makes me very optimistic, because it means that we insist on, on, on being humans, even if we're talking to technology. Yeah, true. So yeah, I agree. That's, that sort of underscores, I think, what you're saying, that we, we need to continue to, be, to act like humans, even if it is toasters but or... If they behave like humans, then, yeah, we have to think about this. You know, it's, I always use this metaphor, like when a waiter brings you your plate, do you say thank you, do you look the waiter in the eyes, or do you just not say anything because mm -hmm. that's his job? Um, they're also human beings, and sometimes we don't treat them like human beings. So we have a lot of questions to ask about current society, to also prepare better for the next society which we're going to have, because... In the West, we are quite advanced in robotics, but in Japan, they are even more advanced because they don't have those limitations about not creating uh, creatures that look like humans that we have deeply ingrained in Christianism. So again, it's going to happen at some point. We will live with robots. How are we going to interact with them? We should definitely prepare as soon as possible. Let's move on to the next movie um, tour. Uh, this uh, movie is Blade Runner, the original, oh. it should be coming up in a minute. Uh, it's Blade Runner, it's the original one, it's from 82. It's not the original. Yeah, that's, that's, that is not the that's original the bad one, sequel. no. <laughs> but the original one is from 82. Uh, it's about a society where humans and AI uh, live together and they're actually indistinguishable, indistinguishable from each other. Um, there is some problem with the AI and they try to find out, like identify, uh, is this person a robot or an AI or is it a real human being? How do they do this? How do they distinguish? Oh, oh with, the, uh, with the Voigt-Kampf test, I think, yes. The Voigt-Kampf test, yes, which is, uh, which I as a computer scientist would call some kind of Turing test. So there seems to be an established test in that fictional universe that helps us distinguish uh, artificial entities, which are called replicants in that universe, from real humans. It's not sure how good that... It seems to work in the sense that... You, so you, can, you seem to be able to talk the replicant into some kind of contradiction. Uh, they don't seem to be very good at uh, talking about paradoxes and so on. I'm not, I'm not sure whether this is really a... Why can't we just open them up? And, it's also and, and, an empathy. And, and in fact, can feel there's empathy. this empathy thing. Uh, uh, he's asked about what he remembers about his mother, and he knows there's nothing... The replicant seems to know that he is lacking any kind of meaningful relationship to his mother. He also knows that there should be a meaningful relationship to his mother there, and hence he shoots the interrogator or something like that in a, in a famous scene. Yeah, so um, in our world, we would call that the Turing test after Alan Turing, the father of computer science, who f in the first article on, artific on artificial intelligence from 53-ish, early 50s, uh, so the first paper on artificial intelligence is by Alan Turing, father of computing, uh, fictionalized by, um, in the imitation game, a recent movie that shamefully the, didn't get an Oscar. Cumberbatch with a, Benedict Cumberbatch, yeah. who also was the Sherlock Holmes character. Yeah, it seems to be always the same, somewhat autistic, autistic nerd. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so he describes, he operationalizes the question of what does it mean for a machine to think and uh, invents what he calls the imitation game and what today we call the Turing test. It plays a role in a recent other science fiction movie, Ex Machina, or Ex Machina. Uh, Ex Machina um, 
where it's misunderstood. So they, they pre this pretends to be a movie about the Turing test, but it's, it's really not. So the Turing test would be to have Christiane and somebody else who pretends to be Christiane in two closed rooms that I can't see, and then I interact with Christiane, and I interact with the robot that pretends to be Christiane, and I have hours and hours of conversation. And after the interaction, I have to say with confidence that the real Christiane is in this room, and the robot is in the other room. If I fail to be able to do that routinely, then robot Christiane has failed, has passed has the Turing passed, test. Yes. Yeah. So, so how close are we to passing to, to some artificial intelligence passing the Turing test? Very good question, yeah. So let me say, um, let me make a dramatic statement. Uh, since 1953, when Turing proposed this, the progress of computer science, which is the discipline I represent, the progress of computer science in developing a machine that can think has been zero. It doesn't feel like that, right? And the reason it doesn't feel like that is that we have been able to make more and more um, realistic imitations of many of the things that make Christiane Christiane. For instance, I can talk to her and she, she answers me back. Um, this we have solved. Uh, can I talk about 2001 here, or is that on your slides for later? We, we are a little bit tight on, on, on time, but, but we have this slide that, that I got from you, which I think is interesting. And before you, uh, that you talk about this, I want to just uh, present something, because you, you, you introduced me to the philosopher Nick uh, Bostrom. And I found this quite interesting. Right. He's written this book called Superintelligence, and it's yeah. a dystopian uh, view of strong uh, in artificial intelligence that you explained before. Um, he says, not only will it be the greatest invention of mankind, it will also be the last. And this emerging technology should be viewed as an immediate and catastrophic risk to our species. The reason why it would be the last is, of course, that um, it will be the last invention controlled by Homo sapiens, since all subsequent innovations will be made by the superintelligence itself. Um, this thinking has inspired business leaders as, uh, as uh, Tesla's Elon Musk and Microsoft's Bill Gates, uh, uh, recently deceased uh, Stephen Hawkins, uh, to really sort of say, Let's, we, this is a time where we need to watch artificial intelligence and really, really, really be yeah. you know, very, very particular about which direction this is taking. And can you tell us from that a little bit about this slide? Yeah, this is from the XK... Who knows XKCD? Oh, that's, that's amazing. Five or ten people. Okay, XKCD, look this up. This is Randall Monroe's webcomic, the smartest uh, thing on the internet. Um, so this is the timeline of AI, and as you can see, sooner or later, AI becomes self-aware, like in the Terminator scenario. Uh, AI becomes self-aware and rebels against human control. And what happens at the other side of the singularity really seems to worry a lot of very, very sharp thinkers. So that the, there are institutes de uh, devoted now to thinking about how to prevent the superintelligence or to handle the value alignment problem if and when the superintelligence appears. They also seem this is an inevitable development that will happen sooner or later. The question is just when. And after it happens, it seems to be game over for humans, just as uh, Homo sapiens was game over for Neanderthals or gorilla, which is a pretty clever creature the future of gorilla today depends entirely on the decisions of Homo sapiens. And when and if we develop the superintelligence, then the future of Homo sapiens will depend entirely on the decisions of the superintelligence. So there are highly educated, super brilliant people who get a lot of money for thinking about this. And I don't get it. I, I'm, I'm simply baffled by these conversations, but I'm, I participate them and in them. Um, 
and get invited to the conferences, and it's, it's really fun over many beers. Uh, so, because what, what I'm worried about is, the, is, the, is how to get there, right? Uh, so the part I worry about is when artificial intelligence... It has started. <laughs> yes. Hal, Hal, is that you? Robot apocalypse. No, it's, it it's the time-traveling nanobots uh, getting back and now trying to kill me while I'm, I'm, I'm presenting AI alarmism. Yeah. He is the chosen one. I, I'm, yes, yes. Save Neo, us, yes. Tor. I'm, yeah, yeah. So, so the thing I'm worried about is indeed the, the future that we are really developing right now with existing technology where we have all the trappings, we have all the power that an, a superintelligence would have. Uh, surveillance, signal processing, uh, super realistic imitation of humans and so on. Uh, but we don't have the superintelligence. It's just, just really humans that control all this technology. And... Uh, and, and that really scares me. But it seems to be much, much harder to talk about that. That has no resonance with people who are super smart and get lots of money for thinking about deep questions. Philosophers care about what happens on the right side of the last dot. Etienne, um, I would like to talk to you about the relationship between human beings and artificial intelligence. Just a few weeks ago, we saw Google coming out with this uh, Google uh, duplex product where you can actually uh, call like your hairdresser or a restaurant, or you don't do it, your artificial intelligence assistant does it, and they call this restaurant or the hairdresser and say, I would like to have an appointment and on Friday, and they have this conversation back and forth, and actually, basically, the conversation is so short that in a, in a way that it actually passes the Turing test because the restaurant doesn't know it's talking to a robot. The robot even says, mm-hmm, in the conversation to sort of just like have a little break and mm -hmm, yeah, okay. Uh, so they're putting this in. So what do you think that will mean to relationships between human beings and artificial intelligence? Is it okay that they pose as human beings or should they actually have a warning before uh, talking and saying I am not a human well, I think being. it's a great device when your mom calls you because you can just have it say uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I hit the butcher just too. press a button and then mm -hmm, sounds uh, great. But for me, I mean, we, we probably see it from, from different point of view, which is also why it's so important that all disciplines and also all people discuss the idea of the future, because for me, AI has never been... Artificial intelligence is not as scary as human stupidity. And the thing is, it's always about what we're going to make of it, in the sense that, first of all, we have to define intelligence. And now we have, if uh, you probably... You, you heard of the, the IQ test, which doesn't mean much. Basically, it's the ability to jump through hoops. Now, we consider there are something like eight different types of intelligence, including emotional intelligence, spatial intelligence, uh, those kind of intelligence. Also, when we design, when they design artificial intelligence, probably also <laughs> when he designs, for he's the chosen one. When they design the artificial intelligence, it will also be good that, first of all, we ask why. What exactly are we going to do with it? Because um, making appointments sounds great. It's very useful because we don't like to do that. But what exactly do we want artificial intelligence? What do we qualify as intelligence? I mean, before we go to the how, which already is happening, I'd like to ask why. What exactly do we want to make of it? And the problem with AI and, and robotic is that back in the day, there were the Asimov laws based on, on the work of Isaac Asimov, who's a great science fiction writer, but also a fantastic scientist. He wrote 500 books for, about the Bible, about everything, and also about robots. And in it, he states four laws of robotics uh, basically saying that robots cannot harm human beings. But then, if you look at what the U.S. Army is working along with many different uh, major companies, the idea of killing human beings by robots, which will not be operated anymore as drones, is already there. 
So it's something also a little bit scary in a sense that also why there's this warning about superintelligence. But I would say about AI, it sounds very exciting, it sounds great, and not taking appointments by yourself, but having a machine doing it sounds great. But again, what are we going to do with this? What exactly is the purpose? And it seems that it's not really something that we discuss. Like everybody say, hey, do you want robots? Yeah, cool, AI, yeah. What are we going to do with it? You know, no, I don't. <laughs> so that's basically some of the ethical dilemmas that we also see a lot of in this next movie, uh, Minority Report. Uh, this movie is 16 years old now. <laughs> Are you happy? Yeah, I love it, yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's uh, actually 16 years old now, can you believe it? And uh, a lot of futurists talk about this movie because it actually got a lot of things right. Uh, uh, the pitch of this movie is that you can predict a crime. This guy works as a, as a crime predictor, so he will uh, analyze some signs, which is basically big data. He doesn't get it from a lot of algorithms, but he gets it from these human being um, oracles. Pre pre Sorry? The precogs. The precogs, yeah, yes, pre exactly. Precognitive, precognitive entities, yeah. It seems, it seems to be magic, but that's not they, important. They are super machines, basically. <laughs> and he then predicts who's going to commit a crime, and then they run out and get the murderer just before he commits the murder. Um, we can now actually predict crime, Atua. Uh, talk a little bit about the algorithms and how, just a little bit, uh, about the big data. <laughs> about how we use big data to, for example, predict like which areas of a city, who could we think would commit a crime, how is it going to happen, because this is some of the data that is actually being used now. Yeah, yeah let's take uh, Eesgaard Castle. So if I, if I wanted to predictively prevent drunk driving, I would, I would put my attention on this area, because there's a, there's a lot of beer to be bought here, happy people, some of them may have come with cars. I could check that with uh, just a lot of surveillance cameras and um, and uh, uh, plate recognition, I could see who, uh, who bought an ESCO uh, ticket, who is here with their own car, has used their credit card to buy more than three beers. Uh, maybe if there are enough cameras, I may even have seen you imbibe those beers. And maybe on your social media profile, I can see that the, uh, that the romance you had planned to actually uh, um, develop during today is going to crash and burn, and you will get even more drunk and, and, and drive home. Right. And so actually, if you have metrics uh, from some sort of self-track device, you could also see the Oh, pulse, if you were so stupid to have your phone sweat, and actually... Sweat, talk, yes. the stress, the, Thank the, you the very pupils. Much. Yeah, pupil dilation, all these kinds of things. I just put that into one of the currently very, very simple algorithms uh, uh, called machine learning. I just put this into a deep learning network, push the large button, and, uh, and out comes a pretty good indication uh, for... Uh, that when you approach your car in the evening, and I can see you put your, actually the car probably beeps to the car, if I get the information as well, you start, I know that you will now be a drunk driver in, in 10 seconds. So then the, the time-traveling nanobots, or actually the real police appears and apprehends you, and may then even actually uh, sentence you for a crime not yet committed. Certainly they will prevent the crime from being committed. So, so this, is, this is a brave new world. This is a future with much less preventable crime, and the only thing we have to pay for it is, of course, 24-7 ubiquitous surveillance and collection of the many, many signals that you deliberately uh, spread throughout your waking life. And an absolute reduction of private life, basically. Yeah, so, so this, is, this is a future, and I, I, can, I could probably give you many, many more similar stories, and depending on what your biases are, I could tell you stories where you say, yeah, this is exactly what we need, or, uh, say, preventing 
preventing middle-aged history teachers from lusting for, this, for their 16-year-old uh, pupils in, in, at their high school based on pupil dilation when they talk to them. Or maybe they stare a bit too, too, uh, in, down their cleavage for, for slightly too long. We could, this is thought crime, right? So we, we, could, we, could, we could realistically convince history teachers from, from committing the thought crime of lusting for their students who are in a very uh, um, asymmetric power relation to them. And, 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 and we, if we, we just bring it, bring it up to, to, to date of, the, of our society today, just no, to but this, this we could do today, I'm quite sure. Yes. China, China is now, there's a school in China experimenting with, with measuring all the pupils in class, whether they look attentive, right? It makes a diff big difference whether you actually look attentive towards the teacher during class or not. And we could just put a camera up, and then we could measure whether the 40 pupils in the class look attentive, and we could base their grades on this. And I can go on. I, I will find stories that you find abhorrent, and I will find stories that you will say, yeah, exactly, we have to do this. It would be a moral mistake. It would be ethical corruption of the highest order to not do this, because technology now allows us to do this, and we can make the world slightly more perfect. We can perfect humans slightly more. The uh, good, benevolent, a paternalistic society is so close, why don't we do it, right? And, and the, the great thing is we disagree about what, which of these are dystopias, which of these are utopias, which of these are abhorrent things that we have to avoid, and which of these things are very, very desirable, and not doing them would be a moral mistake. So it's, it's hard to say no to this technology, right? It's hard for a politician to say, now we accept a certain level of drunk driving after the uh, Heartland Festival, because the alternative, complete loss of privacy, complete loss of anonymity, would be a terrible society to live in. But it's going to be very, very hard for us to say no to that. I hope we say no to, to that. To, I have to, to stop you because we are running out of time. The are coming for you. So. And, and, and I want to just make sure that Etienne gets a word in here also because uh, I want to hear you about this whole ethical area. What does this mean to humanity with, all, with the surveillance and yep. with the, the 24 Minority reports, so the, the story, like you explained, is those pre-car who can actually see a crime before it happens, therefore it doesn't happen. And when you say that, it means that there's a song by Prince, actually, that was part of the soundtrack of Batman in 1989, where he says, if, uh, if you can read my mind, well, if, if uh, you can read my mind, you can see my thought, then probably I will commit a crime, so you can arrest me for that. So it's the same idea. But if you arrest someone before commits the crime, technically he's innocent. So most people would say, it's dystopia, it's horrible, we don't want this. But then, I was explaining this movie to my students, actually, two days ago. And I say, now, it sounds horrible, but imagine this. In 10 years, you have a child, it's a very young child, and that child is going to be abducted, or even worse, by someone. Wouldn't you like to have this system? Because, of course, it sounds great to say, well, let's denounce minority report, it's horrible, that's not what we want. But again, liberty, security. To what extent, what kind of, where do you want the society to be in, in, in the spectrum? So, for me, it's really an open question, in the sense that minority report, for me, is not like a horrible society I don't want to be part of. It should be an inspiration to also think about what kind of future we, we want. Because if this kind of system, if precogs can make sure that nothing bad would happen to my family and my friends and my students or anything, then maybe I would tend to vote for politicians who want to implement this system. So that's also a thing, it's a very general, it's a great movie, okay, and it was, it was written by a star science fiction called Philip K. Dick, and it's, it's the, the most adapted science fiction writer in Hollywood, absolutely amazing, he's also the one who wrote Blade Runner, but it's a very general movie that is supposed to make us think about what kind of future we want. It doesn't say, let's not have this future, it's more, let's think about it, because we are also considering improving the prevention method so that we don't punish as much. So it's also between prevention and punishment. Before we finish off, I want to ask the audience, 
How many of you in here actually think about what happens to your data and, and how much uh, it's being surveyed? Do you consider this? Do you think about it? Quite a lot of people. And how many here are worried about it? How many here are willing to give up quite a lot of privacy to be protected and to protect your children? Yeah, seems like we have people who are quite conscious of data surveillance in this audience in here. So uh, with that, I would like to finish off. We're already a little bit over time, but we want to uh, let you go with some great recommendations uh, so you can continue after this and, and make yourself smarter in this area and also have some uh, great entertainment of it. So Etienne, which book or TV show or movie in the science fiction genre would you recommend? And maybe one that people haven't heard of before. For people who don't like science fiction, and for people who like science fiction, I would like to recommend a book called The Carpet Makers, and it's by a German author called Esbach, and it was published in 1995. It's absolutely stunning. Even if you don't like science fiction, but you are looking for a good book in terms of literature, it's one of the most stunning books I've ever read. Uh, it's 15 or 17 chapters. At some point, there are two chapters you read, and you're like, what do they have to do with anything with the story? At the end, you will understand, it's absolutely amazing. The beginning, it happens, you see, it, it doesn't start like a science fiction at all. It's about this planet where people make carpets made of hair, and it takes them a whole life to make a, a whole carpet. Start like, okay, where are we going with this? And the book is absolutely amazing, and really for people who like science fiction like myself. And I know and that you have said that like you will refund the money if you don't like the book, so yeah. we will make sure to do that exchange. If you exchange. don't like the book, you write to me, I will refund you by PayPal. <laughs> Tua, what is your suggestion? I will refund you nothing. Um, let, me, okay, let me present a borderline case then. Uh, so, um, so science fiction as prediction, as I said, is not the main role of science fiction, I think. It's invention and prevention. Uh, but there is one book that actually takes one of the uh, technological developments really seriously, uh, namely the idea of uploading. So the idea of not building an artificial intelligence, but instead of simulating a human brain uh, sufficiently well so that we have it running on other hardware. So that's called uploading. And there is a book that actually explores this possibility very, very seriously, and leverages everything we know about social science, economics, computer science, and so on, on this scenario, and then describes a plausible future, how such a future would look. The book is called The Age of M, M as an emulation, The Age of M, E-M, by Robin Hanson. You will be really angry after you read it, but it's an amazing description of the future. And uh, in case you just didn't write this down, I'll put it on my Instagram. So if you go to uh, Electronista on Instagram, I'll make sure I put it in the notes so that you, uh, you get these great Your entire plan was to get more Instagram followers. Of course, of course. <laughs> or Twitter. Smart. Please Smart. give a great Good hand job. to Toa and to Etienne. You have listened to a Heartland podcast. If you like what you just heard, please write us a review on iTunes or even better, tell your friends that you heard this. We would really appreciate it. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.